Welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always airing first on WPVMLP Asheville 103.7 and streaming online WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville heard all over the world, and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio, coming out of Taos, New Mexico. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song, WalterParks.com, for more on Walter's music, and thank you, Devine Dial, for managing WPVMFM. We appreciate all the work you do and certainly couldn't do this show and the others without you. If you'd like to reach out to me, Nave at JamesNave.com, that's a good place to reach me. I'd love to hear from you. I'd like to remind you we're sponsored by the Imaginative Storm Writing Project. If you'd like to improve your writing, imaginativestorm.com. It's a good resource. I'm recording this in a little coffee shop in Denver, Colorado called The Devil's Cup. It's just around the corner from my friend Steve's house, and Steve is an audio engineer. He's editing my audio book, 100 Days, which we just finished recording yesterday. So I'm really thrilled with that, and I'm here listening to music, a little bit of ambient sound. You might hear that as well. Today I'm reaching back into my galley of former guests to a show I recorded in 2016 with my good friend Logie Meacham sitting at his table in Greensboro, North Carolina. Unfortunately, Logie is no longer with us, but his spirit indeed does live on, and I remember so much of what Logie taught me. Logie was a terrific blues singer. He was a fantastic actor. He could teach. He was an educator. He performed. He truly enjoyed the life he lived, and when people encountered Logie, they felt like they were more alive. I say that for sure because I certainly felt that way when I was around Logie. I smiled very, very much. So when you listen to this show, keep in mind, Logie and I were talking in 2016. Culturally, America was on the verge of dramatic changes that now have unfolded over the last few years. Here in 2023, we can see some of the results of all the activities that have gone on since 2016. At the time, neither Logie nor I knew what the future held. Today, none of us know what the future holds, but I do know what the past held, and the past held this interview with Logie. And Logie and I got to know each other when we were both involved in a theater company Bob Falls and I founded, in the late 80s and and moving on into the 90s it was called poetry alive and logie was one of the members of the poetry alive crew so we start this interview by logie reminiscing talking about how cal groshish invited him to join the poetry alive performance teams and from there we go in all kinds of directions so enjoy what logie has to say and we'll pick it up with his comments about cal groshish Gracious Cal Grocious convinced me to do Poetry Alive, and it was initially for just uh, two months. I think I totally spent uh, seven or eight years. It was coming to Asheville. It had a great impact on what I do in my daily life today, coming up that mountain. Many of the people in our listening audience today can tell a similar story about coming up from Greenville or 
up I-40 over Old Fort Mountain like you did, Logie, or coming across the mountain from Knoxville, Tennessee. People get to Asheville and their lives are changed forever. Anyway, these days, Logie, you're, you're not working with Poetry Alive anymore. I know you're on the road a bit and telling some stories, singing some songs, um, staying in the business. So what's up and, and how are things these days? Uh, I've gotten to a point, as much as I love to perform live with children, I've just gotten to an age where travel, sitting in cars, uh, being gone for hours and days at a time, sleeping in the holiday inns, even in nice king-size beds, it's just gotten a bit much for me. Right now, I'm at a point where publishing is what uh, I really want to do. Same stories, same types of stories. I have a story, Great Googly Moogly. Uh, I want to be in Christmas. Uh, have your children one under the tree this year. Uh, Great Googly Moogly is a story that talks about the possibilities that come when we are excited by something. And uh, when you look at something that's fascinating, mm -hmm. for me, anytime I see an Arabian horse with mane and tail in the wind and stepping, my first response is, great, googly moogly. And it's the kind of thing that when you say that, it opens the possibility. Great googly moogly makes you focus on what is here and right now. It's not a, uh, uh, it's a right now word. You know, when you're excited, when you see a beautiful woman, you stop and you turn, great, googly moogly. So I wanna teach kids uh, in this book that we're publishing the wonder and the delight of the present tense. And the reason I chose Great Googly Moogly is because it will teach them that in their present moments when something grabs them, that they have a response. You know, there are a couple of responses we give when we well, get right. frightened, excited, mm -hmm. and I call them grown folks' words, and most often, kids can't use them. And when we don't give them a word they can use, they pick ours. And you know some of the stuff we say. <laughs> <laughs> so this great googly moogly, where does that, where does that come from? Uh, when I was a kid, I heard it a lot. Because if you were a kid in our neighborhood, you could not cuss. Grown people and anybody's grown people could grab you and take a belt and beat you behind and take you home to your mama. And she'd beat you behind. So when you saw something as a child that was exciting, uh, you couldn't say what grown people said. Uh, when Grandma told me to go to the wood box and get some wood, and I'd mumble underneath my voice all them grown people's things I wasn't supposed to say. Oh, 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 oh. She'd say, child, what you say? And I'd say, I just said great googly moogly, Grandma. You know, great googly moogly got me out of trouble. It was my exclamation when somebody hit a home run, you know, great googly moogly. <laughs> so we tried to pass it on to another generation. And, and Fred Sanford's friend, Grady, uh, whether they were drinking Champipple or looking at pictures of Lena Horne, his response was always, great, googly moogly. So yeah, that's where we got it from, and that's what I'm trying to produce now. And you've written some verse about great googly moogly? Yes. But could we hear a little bit of that? Sure. Um, I've got some pictures that go with the verse, and uh, one of my first pictures is a street scene. Uh, where people are being tossed and the wind's blowing, they have their coats on and umbrellas, and great googly moogly is what you'll say when a cold wind blows your hat away. Winter's chill gets into your bones, you start to shake and are glad to get home. Great googly moogly. And uh, the next one is a snow scene. Uh, great googly moogly watching winter snow. No school today, you don't have to go. 
All of nature is covered in white, and it's like the sun is shining at night. Great googly moogly. So it's a series of moments that just allow a child to say great googly moogly. And so any child, no matter how old this child is, can think of a little bit of verse and then add great googly moogly. To Absolutely. It. And you can do it high voice, low voice, any, any kind of voice. Yes. And did you have a little song? I think you played a little song for me earlier about it. I sure did. Uh, well, let me, let's, let's hear that. I wrote a little tune that um, I've tried out in elementary schools already, and uh, the kids love it. We're going to move you're watching with snow. No school today, baby, you don't have to go. All the nature is covered, covered in white. It's like the sun is shining at night. Great Google move you got to say great googly moogly alright <laughs> <laughs> so it's a it's a powerful thing that great googly moogly you know when you, when you go home and your wife is mad at you when you walk in the door and you see her look at her and just shout real loud great googly moogly she may be mad at you but that's gonna stop her for a minute I'll catch her She'll wonder, what's wrong with that man? <laughs> so, Logie, your full name is Lorenzo Nietzsche, is that right? That's my government name. That's Absolutely. your government name. Government. And then, but, but I've always known you as Logie. Yes, my, uh, my oldest brother could not say Lorenzo. And he called me Logie. So, grown people didn't correct him. They started calling. So one of the things I've always enjoyed about you is how light-hearted you are and how you seem to take the, the world in stride and you truly enjoy what you are involved in and you often make, make art out of it. Thank you. I wonder if you could talk about how that came to be. How did that philosophy emerge out of, out of of your life and what were some of the things that happened in your life that made you adopt that bright mood those those rosy lenses <laughs> well uh, May Lily Chavis who was my grandmother um, if Jesus ever came to North Carolina my grandmother cooking breakfast you know if he's ever been back I'm sure he stopped and said May Lily what you cooking um, my grandmother was an irrepressible spirit. Uh, we grew up as poor people um, in a little black community that our greatest asset was a baseball field. And my grandma and granddaddy ran a little juke joint sweet shop. My granddaddy, uh, people viewed him, he's a very serious man, and people viewed him as mean. They thought, everybody thought my, in the 1950s, white people were afraid of my granddaddy. Uh, Norman Chavis was a very serious man. But people took to my grandma. My grandma was the kind of a woman who, uh, her spirit just was always in a place that you could not defeat her delight with life. Uh, we often would try to play tricks on her to find out where her limits were. 
You know, mama the house is burning down. You know, all, anything, anything. Uh, she feared absolutely nothing. I've seen her walk out the back door past my auntie and I playing cards on the back porch. Walk out the back door, wipe her hands on her apron and walk right out in the yard. And I saw her bend over and grab something. I thought, thought she threw one of our toys over into the pond in back of grandma's house. Later I figured out that what she had done, there was a snake coming up the stairwell. And she walked right past us, walked right out, caught the snake by the tail and popped his head like a whip and hung him up on the clothesline. Uh, she just was irrepressible. Um, she was always giving. Um, she wasn't always jokey or funny, but nothing rocked her, nothing stopped her. There was something in her that was always anchored and immovable. Um, church people would say it's Jesus, but grandma never went to church. She didn't go to church. She was angry at all the people that ran at church for her sisters and brothers, and they didn't like her husband. So, cause that she married that mean old Norman, that mean old jet black Norman Chavis, and they didn't, they didn't like him. They were, you know, high yellow folks, as, as we call them. And <clears throat> she just decided that if she uh, had to put up with madness, that she wouldn't. So she never did. She was always a woman who kept a very pleasant demeanor. Uh, and she always had a poem. That's where I get that from. Grandma always had poems. Uh, she had a, a box full of them under her bed. And before her death, I pulled one each. I pulled them out. And each one I pulled out, I didn't know it, but she had memorized that whole shoe box full of poetry. Do you have one that you might remember that she did? <clears throat> one of her f most famous, she loved the creation. By James Weldon Johnson? James Weldon Johnson. Oh, yeah. And my whole family. At, at times, sometimes it takes all of us to get it done. But uh, she would stand at the ironing board with her old flop over shoes and her faded dress. And we'd say, say a poem, say a poem, Grandma. And quite often she was too busy. She couldn't. But every now and then she'd stop. You know, and there's a fire popping in the stove and it's cold outside. And she just fixed up some snow cream and we're all there. And she, we'd all start off. And God stepped out. And he looked around and he walked around and as far as the eyes of God could see. Darkness covered everything, blacker than a hundred midnights down in the cypress swamp. And God said, I'm lonely. I'll make me a world. And then God smiled and the light broke. And when the light broke, God took that light and he rolled it into a big old ball and cast it against the night, spangling the night with the moon and the stars. And with the light that was left, he scattered it on the, he hung it in the sky and created the day. And then down between the dark and the light, God hurled the world. And it goes, the poem goes on and just describes all of creation. And he should have said yes. And I recited a poem to him. And when I recited that poem to him, I put him back down, he went and sat down. When we finished the show, I did not realize it, but I made Johnny a star. And Johnny didn't fit in the school. He was new, I didn't know that. He didn't like being there, I didn't know that. But in that moment, I changed Johnny. 
When it was over, Johnny came up to me and put his arms around my legs, and he looked up at me and said, Mr., I love you. And I'm an ex-Marine and an ex-fireman, so I was ready to fight, but I was not ready to love. Johnny, in Corning, New York, made me see that God could use. I thought I was an Old Testament plague, like most people. I thought we were evil, wicked, nasty, and of no redeeming value. But what Johnny taught me was that even someone like me could get through, particularly to children. And children became my, my work with them became my redemption. And working with younger children eventually got me invited to teach at the university level. So what do you think it was about Johnny that made him so unruly in the first place? Uh, he had come from all the circumstances. Uh, he didn't have a father. Uh, he was new in the school. He was not from Corning. Um, and he had no fear. He was a very rambunctious, energetic little boy. So his delight was in giving everybody hell. But in that moment where in front of all those people that he had been adversarial with, all of a sudden, he was getting a round of applause, a standing ovation. It changed his life. So when you first picked little Johnny up and gave him um, an adult mm -hmm. reprimand, if you will. Mm -hmm. What kind of effect do you think that had on him? He, did, he seemed to have responded well to somebody actually noticing him. Mm -hmm. I, I think children like boundaries. I think children like boundaries. Once you begin to realize that you can break all the boundaries, then you're unlimited in ways in which you're willing to break those boundaries. So you get further and further down the rabbit hole or out in space, whichever direction you want to go. But when somebody stops you and you have to deal with that moment, and the first thing you wind up having to deal with is you, it's, it's sobering. Uh, and then I not only stopped him, but then I turned around and made him in the moment. Uh, just a star in his mind. He, just, he, he lit up. He just lit up. That had never happened for him before. And I had been loved, but Johnny made me conscious of the fact that people can love you. It's rare. I'm not from a kid. My family, my grandma used to say, Lorenzo, we ain't no kiss instead of folk. And it's very true. It's very true. Um, I'm not prone. Uh, at that time, I was not prone to my own affections. So after Johnny put his arms around you and said, he said, I love you, mm -hmm. how did that affect you over a period of time? Obviously, you still tell the story. You telling mm -hmm. us this was where it all started for you as a teacher. Yes. yes. So he was, little Johnny was your teacher. He was my teacher. How long did it take you to realize that Johnny was your teacher? Um, on the way home that day. I couldn't get over it. What happened? I still, it shakes me up. It shakes me up still. Because um, I didn't like people. I didn't like people. Uh, a few months before I'd gotten in trouble in a bar, it cost me $6,000 to clean up that mess that I made. And it just, I had a, an idea in my head that I had to, I had to find a different direction. And I didn't know what direction that was. I didn't know where to go. So I was living in that cabin with Poetry Alive. And 
performances for children. I'd come back to Asheville, and there would be, you know how that goes. You come back to the office, and there are bags and pouches from school kids who have written you letters and drawn your picture. And they used to draw my picture with the guitar. And uh, that Mr. Logie, and they'd have, you know, uh, I used to have a phrase I'd use on the kids all the time. I'd say, hubba hubba, and they'd shout back at me, right on! And uh, they'd all draw hubba hubbas over my picture. And that just, it opened a whole world for me of understanding the power of presentation and theater, and particularly the power of teaching, using poetry and using music as uh, a method inside the academic circles. So that was, Johnny opened up a whole, whole new world. And it's interesting when we talk, I don't think of you as a man who would be that afraid and yet, there was fear there. Yes. Talk a little bit about that and how the power of poetry and the power of art helped you overcome fear and how it could help other people. Sure. Uh, one of the great things that happened when I started performing for children, uh, when I started performing poetry, I was also being connected to my grandmother's spirit. It brought me full circle to the things I had grown up with. But I did not connect the two until I realized the effect that it had on little Johnny and people after him. Um, there were a number of children over the years and young people. I still get phone calls, messages from either people who saw me, heard me perform. Um, I had a young lady call me the other day. So it, it, it kind of um, changed the way that I had understood and the way that I knew my life and my own performance ability and my own presentational ability, you know, I had grown up thinking it was for fun, for jokes, for toasts, uh, because that's what my family did. When we got together, we recited poems and we drank beer and we laughed and had homemade wine. It was just fun and poetry, you know, good time. But I saw over those years the ways in which uh, literature brought stories uh, to people that made them see their lives, made them see themselves, uh, forgave. Literature forgives and literature loves. All of us need love, but not many of us know how to do it. But when you can take the literature of love, and when you can take the language of love, uh, I think you and I were on stage and we both like to recite Song to Celia. Oh, I, I've forgotten that. Do you still remember it? Drink to me only with thine eyes, mm. and I will pledge thee mine. Or leave a kiss but in the cup, and I'll not look for wine. The thirst that from the soul doth rise, and ask a drink divine, but might I of Jove's nectar sup, I would not trade for thine. I sent thee later rosy wreath, not so much honoring thee as giving hope that there it may not wither be, but thou thereon didst only breathe, and send it back to me, since when it grows and smells, I swear, not of itself, but thee. Oh. And as you remember, uh, school teachers with whom we have done that poem and presented, on occasion break down and just cry. Just, oh! <laughs> so the literature brought to people what they needed. Joy, love, uh, consideration, um, 
imagination. There's a poem we used to do called Praise God for the Dapple Things. Um, perspectives, different ways of viewing uh, God. Maya Angelou and I, uh, my last moment with Maya was a moment in which we both recited her poem, Preacher Don't Send Me. Uh, Preacher Don't Send Me When I Die to some big ghetto in the sky where rats eat cats the leopard type and Sunday brunch is grits and tripe. I've seen those cats and I've watched them kill. The grits I've had would make a hill or a mountain. So what I need from you on Sunday is a different creed. Preacher, don't send me when I die to some big ghetto in the sky where streets are paved with gold and milk is free. I stopped all milk at four years old and when I'm dead, I don't need gold. I'd consider a place pure paradise where friends are loyal and families are nice. Well, the music is jazz and the season is fall. Oh, promise me that or nothing at all. Uh, that poem became my theology. Now, you worked with her a bit because you all were working in the Greensboro, Winston-Salem area together, right? She was at Wake Forest and I was at Winston-Salem State. And uh, she used many of my students that had graduated. She would use them in her performances and in her touring. So we... Wake Forest had theater, but my students were pretty good. <laughs> I imagine they were. <laughs> so we developed a very good friendship. But those, that poetry, her poetry, Langston Hughes's poetry, pre presented so many possibilities. Langston Hughes, and for all of you listening, go to your books right now and read Langston Hughes. Let America be America again. It's a very apt poem for the present moment. Do you know that poem? I, I don't know all of it. I know it in pieces. And little piece. Do you verse. have a little piece of it? Maybe we uh, could try. Let um, America be the America it used to be. The voice of the pioneer on the plain. The carpenter with his belt. Uh, the the mason with his trowel. Let America be the farmer. The, and it goes it on. It goes on, yeah. Yes, yes. It's just beautiful. So you say that if we read that piece now, it would help us reflect on the, the times that we're experiencing now. Would you like to reflect yourself a bit on what's going on in America right now? Because I know that you are involved in literature, and literature moves us. Mm -hmm. It moves our hearts. It makes us. It allows us to love. It, it allows generosity. It also asks us to think. It does. And it asks us to consider things. And, and I mean, we get emotional. Because we live in a world that's that's unruly sometimes. Mm -hmm. So talk a little bit about now and where you are in in all of this. Well, I've I've been uh, looking at the current situation, the the political dynamics, and I, I think we are all um, we are all in the middle of uh, the novel Moby Dick. Captain Ahab, Donald Trump is Captain Ahab. <laughs> He's willing. Not only is he willing, he has tapped into a feeling. He's willing to risk all the lives of the people on the ship in search and in pursuit. And I will say this quite directly. He's in pursuit of whiteness. Great white whale in American culture, uh, having never reconciled its early construction, has never reconciled the relationship of whiteness in the middle of otherness, and that otherness has been underneath. So now it's it's coming to the surface, and I find that we are really in uh, we're we're on the Pequod, and and if we don't stop Captain Ahab, uh, he will destroy this ship. If we elect someone like Donald Trump, this Captain Ahab, 
he'll destroy the ship. We're also in a very adolescent moment. We're refusing to grow up. We refuse to accept the responsibility of what a great nation like ours is, and we just, we just won't do it. Uh, Captain Ahab refused to accept the responsibility of all the lives of the people. Uh, there were other people other than him, and there was a minister, there was a preacher. Um, um, the lieutenant comes to him and tries to get him to change his course, tries to get him to shoot through faith, but he's not listening, and America's not listening. We're not listening to Jesus. If Jesus came back, we'd kill him. You know, he's, he's Middle Eastern. <laughs> <laughs> oh, help Jesus if he shows up today. <laughs> Mankind is adolescent, and America's the biggest bully in the schoolyard. We've got to mature and grow up and accept the technological moment we live in. Noam Chomsky calls it intentional ignorance. I call it militant ignorance. And we continue to display a militant ignorance about who we are and where we are. That's why I suggest Langston Hughes's poem, Let America Be America Again. I'd like to pause for just a second for a station break. So you were saying, let America be America again. I'd like to ask you, what do you think makes America great? I know Donald Trump is saying he wants to make America great again. You've been working all your life in this state to make it great. And people refer to North Carolina as a great state. They do. And people have often referred to America as a great country. As an American, as an an ex-Marine, as somebody who's been involved in all kinds of situations throughout your life, what makes America great and why are you so in love with it? I still think we create so much possibility. America is where people have come from all over the world in search of their possibilities. People who are anti-government are people who are direct descendants of folks who had the benefit of what the American government was. When pilgrims come here, the American government provides ability, provides land. The American government removes the Indians and provides the expansion, provides railroads, gives property to people. So government was a fabulous thing for the foundation of fathers and many of the generations that followed them. Government instituted and maintained slavery in the United States so that Americans had a cheap labor force for 400 years. Government also supplied for soldiers returning from World War II, a marvelous opportunity to have homes to go into business. And people loved government right up until the moment that government was something that was going to be accessible to everybody. And that moment, no, no one liked government anymore. Uh, Ayn Rand and Barry Goldwater are a day late and a dollar short when they come out with the concept of conservatism because the genie is out of the box. Both uh, Goldwater and uh, Ayn Rand are writing long after the bomb has been dropped. So the genie is out of the box. Technology has taken over to such a degree and America is extremely technological and scientific. 
So we are now challenged to make heaven. Heaven is right here. Nobody's going to die and go to heaven. We have to choose to make heaven. And if not, we'll do what we've been doing for the last, I won't, I'll say from Reagan forward, we've been in the business of creating hell. And we've used government or the lack of it to do it. So heaven and hell are our choices. They're not destinations. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He never said we were going anywhere. When you read that book, he never says we're going anywhere. He says the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And we don't, we don't view. Walk outside tonight when it gets dark and look at your street. Those amber street lights make the streets look like they're paved with gold. Heaven's supposed to be a land of milk and honey. Go to Starbucks and Harris Teeters. They got milk, honey, red wine, white wine. If Jesus had to do a, a wedding today, he could back up to the doors and he wouldn't have to mess up water. He could load the truck up. <laughs> Everything that we are told is heaven is here, but we have to choose it. And our leadership is not doing that. So what are some of the things you think make hell here? The poverty that is created, manufactured. We have half of the world that eats every day and the other half of the world that cannot get a fresh drink of water. We pump oil out of countries that need water. The same pipelines that we run in one direction with oil, it wouldn't be crazy to run it back the other way with water. Processing ocean water, people say it's expensive. Anything you want to do is expensive, but it's possible. And we are now in an age of possibility. Never has there been an age where when what Jesus called heaven was just possible. Today, only thing we lack, the distance between heaven and hell is not time, it's the distance between our ears. The difference between heaven and hell is the distance between our ears. We lack the will to make humanity a part of what we thought about in the American dream, this great city on the hill. St. Augustine talks about two cities. Augustine writes about Rome, and Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the city of peace. Rome is the city of Caesar. And he challenges us, which city will we live in? And that's our challenge today. Do we live in Rome? You know, Rome burns. Jerusalem is destroyed, but Jerusalem is a city of peace and it's destroyed. When can we make a conscious decision to either do one or the other and hold on to that decision? And the possibility has never been as straight and as great as it is right now, right now. And it, but it takes American leadership. And unfortunately, we have too much desire. Everybody wants to be in leadership. Nobody wants to be in service. And that's our problem today. Everybody wants to be a leader. Nobody wants to serve. So when you talk about service, you think, have you experienced service and peace going close hand in hand? Yes. Yes. Can you say a little more about service and what that means to you and how that looks? Well, I, I honestly believe if we were just all willing to acknowledge each other's humanity, there are far too many places on the face of the earth where we refuse to accept each other's humanity. Here in North Carolina, we have an LGBT fight going on with a, a crazy bill sponsored by our governor. But it's not only an attempt to marginalize transgendered people, when you look at the rest of the stuff that's in that bill, 
municipalities uh, in the state are not being allowed to make their own decisions. Uh, more than 10 years ago, conservatives wanted local control. So they passed legislation that gave them local control. Um, now that municipalities, Charlotte and other cities, uh, my hometown of Greensboro wanted to arrange its city council, but the state steps in. Charlotte wants to have this LGBT law, but the state has stepped in. So what conservatives wanted 10 years ago, they want to switch around now because now they have the state house. So they want control in Raleigh. They want, you know, so the, the idea of servants is, is not that difficult. You know, how can we be of service to people who want to come to this great America? How could Syrians right now are being treated in a manner very similar to Jews years ago? Mistre misplaced, m misaligned, uh, Arab culture today, misaligned, black culture still misaligned. And what is frightening is that the powerful have now begun to niggerize white people. And when you get that, and when, when the people who are at the top, when Mitch McConnell don't care about his own cousins, we're living in a nasty world. We're living in a nasty world. So we, we've service, and we've, we've got to get back to where we are willing to uh, do unto others as we would have them do unto us. And we, it's very simple, but we've gotten away from it. Well, that's what Jesus said, right? Yes. That's, that really sums it up, don't mm -hmm. you think? Yeah. So what about in service? How does your art fit into all of this service? Reaches into man's spirit. Uh, you can't get to a man's spirit when his stomach is empty. But if his stomach is empty and you can get through, you can, and really music and, and drama and theater, those things transcend our little gadgets and gadgets and meals and snacks and fat meat or, or kale. It doesn't matter. The spirit. Uh, the body is a wonderful thing. The physical is a wonderful thing. But all of us have this marvelous sense of spirits that yearn to be free. And we're living at a time when everybody can pick up a cell phone and see what's going on on the other side of the world. So we're constantly destroying people's spirits with negative, uh, negative rhetoric, negative actions. Uh, I have two sons, and I'm almost frightened to death that I am now the father of two young black boys because there's a spirit in American culture. And uh, Amir Baraka used to say in the movie, it can't be no spirit, can't be no ghost, Bulworth, he says. He says the Bulworth, can't be no ghost. It's got to be a spirit. We now live in a land of ghosts because people no longer have spirit. We live with ghosts, dead so, men walking. So how old are your boys? They're 17. Uh, my son Ishmael will be 17 in June, and my son Issa is 15. And they're talented. They're performance poets. They're musicians. They use tools, what I call, what we do is what I call tools of the spirit. Um, they use those tools of the spirit as well. Would it be fair to say when people attempt to make art, that's the reaching for their tools of spirit? Oh, yes. 
That, yes. That's and it doesn't really matter, does it? How much, how good it is? No. Just you, you're making art, yes. and there's something magical about that. When you reach into the the soul to try to make art, then it becomes a tool of the, of the spirit. I remember you and I years ago when we were traveling together, which we did some. Yes. We were in Gatlinburg, Tennessee. And we were at a teacher's conference, and the teacher's conference was over, and we were all gathered in the, in the hotel, or I guess it was the, the bar of the hotel, and there was a band on stage, and the band was playing, and they invited you to come up and, and sing. And I don't know if you remember Danny Boy. Do you remember that song? I do. And, and you sang Danny Boy that night, mm -hmm. and of course it's an old Irish tune, mm -hmm. and lots of people know it. And, the room wept, or at least I did that night, among others as well. I was wondering just, I mean, I'm dropping this on you, but do you <laughs> think you could just sing a little refrain of Danny Boy? <laughs> I'll try. I'd <laughs> just love to, love to hear you try it, Logie. It's a, a tune that uh, my father also liked. Um, I buried him uh, the 31st of January. This year? This year, just uh, not, not long ago. But he loved it. One of his friends used to sing it. And I have to make sure I know all the words. Oh, Danny boy, the pipes, the pipes are calling from glen to glen and down the mountainside. The summer's gone and all the Falling. It's you, it's you must go and I must buy. But come ye back when summer's in the meadow and when. sunshine or in shadow oh Danny boy oh Danny boy I love you so yeah it's uh, another verse but yeah. <laughs> I get the, I get the point um Tom T. Hall was right. There are only three things in life worth a dime. Old dogs, children, and watermelon wine. Uh, this year I made persimmon wine, but last year I made watermelon wine. And did you find the persimmon wine to live up to the watermelon wine? It was quite good, I must say. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I had never made persimmon. I made wine a lot of things, but the persimmon wine, I... This year I had, uh, yeah, I, I, I kind of changed Tom T's thing a little bit, and I had old dogs, children, and persimmon wine, but uh, it it, uh, it works out the same, persimmon, watermelon, <laughs> but good you wine. Put your hands in it and, and make it nice. Make it work. You turn, you turn watermelon into wine. <laughs> into wine. Yes, indeed, and persimmons into wine. Yeah, we funny. have known each other a long time, Logie, and I know you, again, are man of many talents and last night over dinner you told me you were getting back to the music 
And, and that's something that you've been in and out of all, all your life. So tell us a little bit about the music now and what you're up to and what you're planning. I mean, are you writing songs, creating new work? I know you do a lot of old traditional tunes as well. And maybe talk a little bit about that. And as our hour closes out, maybe you can close us out with a song or two. Sounds good. Uh, I'm in the studios right now at Earth Tones Recording in Greensboro, uh, my friend Benji Johnson. And uh, I have been out and about with several projects. Uh, we had a, a homeless project that we were doing um, last, that's two years ago the album came out. And I'm also working with a group of young homeless men. Once a month we do a concert at St. Barnabas Church in Greensboro. And there is an awful lot of talent right out on the street. So we do our concert once a month and we practice about every Friday. Um, St. Barnabas Episcopal and uh, Father Randall Keeney. Father Keeney has allowed us to use his church to rehearse in. And we've been trying to get a lot of these young men who are on the streets that I discovered had all this. When you travel in a number of cities, you see homeless guys out playing guitars and different things. But the homeless shelter in Greensboro, the IRC has so many young men and young women who are just talented. So I got them all together and Randall gave us his church. We had a concert last Friday. We'll have another one in a month. And uh, extremely talented. So that music has been interesting to me to be watching other players and helping other people play music. But I've gone into the studio and I've been recording just some remakes of things that I kind of over the years have enjoyed singing and things that I, I do one tune that's kind of got a little Richie Havens to it. Mm -hmm. So uh, I have a lot of fun with that. And I'm just doing stuff that lets me record. I'm trying not to be touring a whole lot, but I want product. Uh, instead of, as a young man, I was willing to go and chase those dollars. I kind of want to sit down a little bit and rest. My, my body is telling me that I'm older, uh, so I have to take that S off my chest and put on my lapel pin. Let them know I used to be a superman, but I have to stop traveling. I've got to be able to rest and uh, I'm falling apart. <laughs> <laughs> I'm dying right in front of you. You just can't see it. I know my mother used to say, you are a part of all that you've met. She quoted Tennyson's Ulysses. And now I say, well, I'm falling apart with all that I've met. <laughs> falling apart with all that I've met. So maybe if you wouldn't mind, close us out with a couple of tunes that you're, that you're working on. Well, I've got one that, one of the favorites I've done here lately. Reverend Gary Davis does a song called Samson and Delilah. And for me, it also speaks to the times that we are living in. Samson is living at a moment when the culture around him is falling apart. And the uh, oppression of the day is something that he cannot tolerate. So he wraps his chains around the temple. And while he has all of the powerful players in one room, he yanks the temple down. And the old blues country song that Reverend Gary Davis sings is all about Samson and Delilah. And the hook of the song is, if I had my way, I would tear this old building down. You heard about Samson, heard about his birth, heard he was the strongest man on earth. 
One day Samson was walking along. He reached down and picked up an old jawbone. Well, he raised that bone above his head. When he stopped moving, 10,000 was dead. Lord, if I had my way. If I had my way, if I had my way, I would tear this old building down. You heard about the lion, killed a man with his jaws. Samson had that lion, he grabbed him by his paws, but he reared that beast till he killed him dead. And the bees made honey in the lion's head, Lord, if I had my way. If I had my way, if I had my way, I would tear this old building down, tear it down. You heard about the lava, so sweet and fair. She had good looks, Lord knows, and long black hair. She was so sweet, Lord, she talked so fine. She was the finest daughter of the Sat on Samson's knee. Said, Tell me why your strength lies. If you bleed, if you shave my head, you cleanse my hand. Well, my strength come natural like any other man. Good God, if I had my way. If I had my way, if I had my way, I would tell you so. Daddy got drunk, left me here to die or go in the middle of Tobacco Road, but it's a home, yeah, the only light I've ever owned. I despise you because of guilty, but I love you because of my home. Tobacco Road, Tobacco Road. If I had my way, I would tear this old building down. So Tobacco Road is often thought of as not the easiest place to be. But if you could reconstruct Tobacco Road so that it's an easier road to walk on, what would it look like? And we'll close out with that, Logie. Well, just a, a lot more people's willingness um, to allow other people to grow. We live at a time when there's no reason to have people homeless on the street. There's no reason to build a wall to keep people out who actually lived here 500 years ago. They're not trying to get into America, they're trying to come home. <laughs> that used to be their home. We took it from them. You know, we don't reconcile our history. We don't reconcile our lives and our journey. And for me, that is the basic mythos of Western culture. We're at a moment that is ripe for mythopoeia, to change the myths we grew up with. Our myth of time is past, present, and future. And we like the future because if we stay in the future, you never have to deal with the present. You don't have to do anything about the stuff you did in the past. But there are cultures in the world where the past is not past. 
The present is uncertain but negotiable, and the future does not exist. And when you live like that, you take care of business today. You take care of people today. You do the right thing today because the future doesn't exist. And if we would take the technology that's available to us, the sensibilities we already know, we know what to do. We know what to do. We just refuse to do it. We don't have the will to do it. So that mythopoeia is what I seek in my music, in my stories, uh, in my life, uh, challenging the people around me. Um, and black culture in particular, uh, I'm very convinced that you know black folk raised America. And one of the great difficulties of today is that uh, black culture has stopped saying to America, it ain't right, what you're doing ain't right. And that's been a legacy of American culture that we don't talk about, particularly in the South. Black Southerners and white Southerners know that history of synergy that transcended race. A week after Barack Obama was elected president, I spoke in Asheville and I spoke to the Shriners. And I don't mean the black Shriners. I spoke to the white Shriners. And the lady who invited me, she said, Logan, I had no idea that one week before you got here, we would have a black president. She said, I'll pay you. She said, but all these people are angry as hell that <laughs> there's a black man in the White House. She said, I don't, you don't have to come and speak. I'll send you the check. I said, no, I'm coming. And I walked in that room full of white shriners and their wives, and the last thing they wanted to hear was anything from a black man. They were mad at Barack Obama. They didn't want to hear it. But I took them back to when they grew up, and I asked them, find a white man who's over 50, and nine out of 10, I'll show you a man who at some point had a black person fix his bicycle, cook his breakfast, pick him up after school, cook supper for his mama, take care of his daddy, his granddaddy, the farm he grew up on. And not all white people had it, but in the South, that's a traditional story. There was tremendous synergy of the races at the peak of the highest height of racism and oppression in American culture. Blacks and whites depended on each other, they had to. And white men who are over 50 this day understand that, but their children don't. Young white children have never been in a house with black people, never been around them. So that, that promise, that synergy, that mythopoeia that's possible out of our common experiences. Oh man, the dirty South, Tobacco Road knows that story. And if there's gonna be a change, it won't come from Harvard, Yale, or University of Chicago. It'll come off of Tobacco Road. That's why I fight and I'm an advocate for the great state of North Carolina. And there you go, my friends. Thus concludes my 2016 conversation with Logie Meacham. I hope you enjoyed it. And we remember Logie fondly, and I, I love to tell Logie stories once in a while. We had a great time out there on the big American highway. And on that note, thanks so much for listening to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always airing first on WPVMLP Asheville, 103.7, streaming online, WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville heard all over the world, and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio, coming out of Taos, New Mexico. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song, WalterParks.com. Thank you, Devine Dial, for managing WPVMFM. 
can always reach me, Nave, at jamesnave.com. And a reminder, we are sponsored by the Imaginative Storm Writing Project. If you'd like to improve your writing, imaginativestorm.com is an excellent place to start that process. So that's it for now. Thanks so much for tuning in, and I do hope I catch you on that turnaround somewhere down the line.